Our theme for this series is, of course, taken from that ancient carol, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, which is one of the very oldest songs that we sing at Christmas. Um, it was probably written in the 16th century, that is the 1500s, although never actually put into uh, formal print until the 18th century. Uh, and, but despite its age and despite having been edited numerous times to be brought up to date um, throughout the years, not up to date doctrinally because the doctrine has always been sound, but just just the language as language evolved. Um, this carol is a, a powerful expression really of the basic elements of, of the gospel, which probably explains in part why it has endured through five and a half centuries. So we're singing, as when we sing that song, we're singing a, a very old uh, Christmas carol. Last week I asked the question, where does the comma go? Um, should it appear after the word you or after the word Mary? And uh, most music historians agree that the line originally read, God rest ye Mary, comma, gentlemen. Why is that? Well, when this carol was written, uh, the word rest didn't mean to sleep. It didn't mean to spend time vegging on the couch. Uh, instead, it meant to make or to keep. And in other words, God make you and keep you merry. But neither did the word merry mean what we think it means today. Back in the 16th century, the word merry meant great or strong or mighty. Uh, only later did the word merry evolve to mean happy or jovial. So in the 16th century, God rest ye merry meant God make you mighty. God make you mighty. God make you strong. And we observed last week that uh, in the ancient legend of Robin Hood, uh, his band of merry men weren't just jolly fellows in tights, but rather they were fighters. They were warriors. And they were Robin Hood's mighty men in the same way that uh, King David's closest and best generals and warriors uh, were known as his mighty men. But with all of that in view, the question that we're asking and seeking to answer is, is it really possible to grow mighty? Is it possible to grow stronger, even to become mighty through the Christmas season? Can this season actually be a time of uh, spiritual growth and strengthening for us? And I think it's an important question, uh, especially in view of the fact that for many, the Christmas season, like otherwise, uh, other otherwise festive seasons of the year, can be difficult, can't it? Uh, it can even be traumatic. It has the power to stir up memories and feelings that we'd rather keep at arm's length emotionally. It can be a time of frustration because of high expectations that go unfulfilled, uh, a time of family drama as well as family trauma. It's a time of year when drug addiction and alcoholism and chronic depression are on full display. So we should ask whether Christmas can really be a season of strengthening for anyone, especially those who struggle at this time of year. Is it possible to wrap up this season without pain, without a sense of disillusionment with the whole thing? And last week I suggested to you, and I, I want to say again, that growing Stronger through Christmas is not at all a matter of keeping Christ in Christmas. It may come as a shock to you that I would say that. But the reality is that if you 
somehow struggled to keep Christ in what you think of as Christmas, then the thing that you call Christmas is the problem. Because it's something counterfeit, it's something competitive, it's something other, it's something false. Our goal at Christmas ought actually to be simply to keep Christmas. Because Christ is Christmas. And Christmas is ultimately one thing and one thing only. And that is the the remembrance, the celebration of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything else, I would suggest to you, is a diversion. It's a distraction and it's a deception. Now, I I don't mean to sound like the Grinch or Scrooge here, but, but what I want to say to us is, Let's make the main thing the main thing and recognize the rest of it for what it is. It is something other. It is something other. If you're trying to keep a kind of Christmas defined by Madison Avenue uh, or the Hallmark Channel or, or the slick commercials that have been appearing on our television screens for the past two months as well as our computer screens and just add a little sprinkle of Jesus to the whole thing, then you may wake up on every 26th of December exhausted, out of money, and disillusioned. So in these three messages leading up to Christmas Day, my aim is to to simply challenge your thinking and redirect your focus by suggesting three ways that we can gain strength through this season and beyond. There are just three of countless ways, but just three. Last week I suggested that that we can take strength when we realize that Jesus' credentials as Messiah are proven by fulfilled prophecy. And we we looked at 15 out of 330-plus Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ and in in his work that all stacked up together point unmistakably to Jesus as the one that the prophets foretold. And this morning, what I'd like you to consider with me is that we can take strength when we realize that by his death, Jesus has delivered us from our slavery to the fear of death. Fear is not foreign to the Christmas narrative. You remember that uh, at the beginning in Luke chapter 1, when, when the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah the priest, in the temple in Jerusalem as he's offering incense on the altar, that his first words to Zechariah were, don't be afraid, fear not. To Mary, when that same very same angel Gabriel appeared to her in Nazareth, his first words to Mary were, fear not, don't be afraid, Mary. When the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, and presumably the same angel, we're not specifically told in that case, his first words to Joseph in that dream were, Joseph, don't be afraid. And of course, to the shepherds outside of Bethlehem that night, when the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and then and then, a multitude of the heavenly host, meaning thousands of angels, appeared with that angel in the sky, the first words of the angel to the shepherds were, don't be afraid, fear not. Well, our scripture this morning is just two verses. 
that that encapsulate the message of Christmas and 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 this particular way of looking at it. Would you stand with me and let's let's read them together. Hebrews 2 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I'd like to just, if you will, do a simple Bible study with you on these two verses. And uh, there are four major points. All of them begin with the letter D. Um, didn't plan it that way. It just kind of worked out that way. And the first is the doctrine of the incarnation. When we read verse 14, the first part, first half of verse 14, we read this, that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, the doctrine of the incarnation. And what I, what I want to say initially is that we are human, uh, so he became human. We are human, so he became human. That's another way of saying what the writer of Hebrews says there. Uh, Isaiah pointed very clearly to this 700 years uh, before it came to pass when he wrote in Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So what we have in this prophecy is a miraculous sign from God, which is a virgin who conceives, and while still a virgin, gives birth to a male baby. And the name of that baby is to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the Old Testament, in, in, he, in Hebraic ways of writing and thinking, to be called something, to be called a name, means that it, it's a, a description, a characterization of who the person is. We know that his given name at birth was Jesus. That was at the direction of the angels. But we read these various titles in the Old Testament that tell us who he is and what he will be all about, what he will be like. And then think about a prophecy then, like this one two chapters later, in Isaiah 9, pray uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So consider just a few facts that are features of this prophecy. The child who is born, the son who is given, is the same son from two chapters earlier, the one whose name means God with us. And among the four titles given here in this prophecy, these three, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, each unmistakably tell us that this Son who would be born is both divine and eternal. That is, He is God and He lives forever. He will sit on David's throne and He will rule in 
justice and righteousness. Imagine that, a governmental leader that's just and righteous. Can you imagine? But in this case, perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And his government will never end, but it will continue on indefinitely. It will continue on forever. It will continue on eternally. And then when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary in Nazareth to announce that she was the one who had become the mother of Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, it was clear that that he would be the that that her child would be the one that Isaiah prophesied. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, now if that that wasn't an echo for you, go back and read Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Because what the angel is saying is exactly what what the prophet Isaiah said would be. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Do you see it? A virgin would be with child and bear a son, and his name, the name given him would be called Emmanuel, God with us, God born of a human Not a little G God, but the one and only God with a capital G, big G God in human flesh. To Mary, the angel Gabriel, who who we learned earlier in chapter 1, stands in the very presence of God, said that her son would be called the Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High, the Son of David, descendant of David, and the Son of God. And all of this would come about not by human means of conception, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, by a miraculous overshadowing by the Most High God. How does that work? I don't know. But I believe it. And finally, when the angel appeared in a dream to Joseph, he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And here's just tremendous confirmation. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior or Deliverer, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The angel came to reassure Joseph that the baby in Mary's womb wasn't a product of her infidelity, but that the baby in her womb was from the Holy Spirit and that he should go forward with taking her as his wife because this was no ordinary baby. This is the one prophesied by Isaiah, the one whose name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ is the God-man. And as improbable and as mysterious as it all sounds, the claim of Scripture is that he is fully God and fully man. Listen to what Paul wrote regarding the nature of Jesus Christ when in his letter to the Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the, the preeminent one over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." Amen? The doctrine of the incarnation. God with us. God among us. God within us. And because he is human, the Bible tells us that he understands and sympathizes with our weakness. He understands and sympathizes with our weakness. The writer of Hebrews says of him, We do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I mean, think about that. Because he was in human flesh, there there was no temptation that he didn't experience. And you say, well, he probably wasn't tempted in some of the exotic ways that I am, right? Because we each think that our sin is is, is so secret and so devious and so, you know, whatever. That's not what the Bible says. It says here, he has been tempted in every respect as we are. Every. Every, I think, means every. And yet without sin. So what do we do with that? He goes on, he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. He's not a a God that we have to stay far from. We can draw near to him that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, if you're, if you're not a believer today, you can't approach that throne with anything but fear and terror because he is a holy God and you are still in your sin. But if you've trusted in Christ, your sin is covered and that throne of God becomes not a throne of judgment but a throne of grace. And, it's, and it becomes a source of mercy and help in our time of need. Because he's human, you can go to him. Something you will never hear from the mouth of Jesus is, why can't you get your act together? 
But don't we put those words in his mouth in our minds? God, how could you love me? I can't get my act together. He'll never ask you that because he already knows the answer why you can't get your act together. He sympathizes with your weakness because he's lived in your flesh. He understands the human condition in every aspect without exception. And because he's human, he can save us. Because he's human, he can save us. Jesus said to his friend Nicodemus, John 3, 16 and 17, For this is the way that God loved the world. He gave his, he gave, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world should be saved through him. The arrival of God in human flesh was the expression of God's compassionate, merciful, gracious love. God sent his son to be one of us for one express purpose, to save us from our sins, and in doing that to grant us eternal life. And that saving would involve his death. It would involve his death. Three-word phrase there in verse 14, that through death. That through death. See, Jesus was born to die. He was born to die. I was thinking about this yesterday when we were at the, I was at, went with my daughter to cut a Christmas tree for her, and we were at the Christmas tree farm. And all those trees that were planted there were born to be cut. They were born to die. They, they had one, one destiny, and that was to be covered with ornaments and lights and then die. Jesus was born to die. The death of Jesus was neither an afterthought nor an accident. It was God's plan from eternity past. Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus said, The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. As God, he could not die. So he had to become human. I love these thoughts from pastor and author Tim Keller. He wrote, think of it like this. If Jesus Christ was a completely holy God and not loving at all, why in the world would he have emptied himself of his glory and come to earth and experienced all of this? If he was just a holy and just God, but not a loving God, he would never have become human. But if he was only a loving God who says, oh, I accept everybody, then there would have been no need for him to come down either. He, he just accepts everybody. But only a holy God who says sin must be punished and a loving God who says, but I need to punish sin in such a way that I can still love and forgive my people. Only a God like that who is both holy and loving would have become human. And that's why he did it, so that a holy God could satisfy justice and at the same time open his arms to us. If he wasn't human, we just couldn't be saved. Christmas happened 
so that Easter could happen. Right? Christmas happened so that Easter could happen. So the, 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 the movement from, from glory, the glory of heaven to the manger in Bethlehem to the cross in Jerusalem was all one movement. We think of them as separate. We separate them so it gives some people an opportunity to go to church twice a year. But that's just a joke. A little dark pastoral humor there. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. There's Christmas, right? There's Christmas. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's Easter. Or at least the first part of it. Paul goes on, he says, Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave to him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And there's, there's, the, there's the, the resurrection and the ascension and the glorification of Jesus. So Jesus came to die. When I was a kid, there was a sticker that everybody put on their notebooks and on their lockers, and and it said, born and bred to rip and shred. It was kind of a macho thing, right? Born and bred to rip and shred. Jesus came to do some ripping and shredding. He came to bring about some destruction. There's your third D, destruction. Latter part of verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, Satan himself. How did the devil have the power of death? He had the power of death by turning death into a doorway to hell instead of a doorway to heaven. Well, how did he do that? He did that by damning me to eternal separation from God with the long list of my record of debts. And he held it against me. He said, look, Jim, there's the proof. There's all of your sin. There's all of your rebellion. There's all of your rejection of God. There's all of your apathy. There's all the things you failed to do and the things that you did do that you shouldn't have done. There it is. You're a loser. Then what does it mean that through his death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death? It doesn't mean that he annihilated the devil. It doesn't mean that he put the devil out of existence entirely. That's coming. There's going to come a day when Satan and all of his angels and all of his evil henchmen are, are cast into the lake of fire. That, that day is coming. But it hasn't come yet. Instead, the word here means that he nullified the power of the devil. He nullified his power. That is, he, he broke the back 
of his power. He, he rendered it inoperative. He took away his capacity to enslave us to the fear of death. I heard someone say recently that Satan really is, as Peter described him, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But for the one who's trusted in Christ, he is a, a toothless, clawless lion. In other words, he, he may come up and gum you, but he can never bite you. He can never kill you. That's kind of a gross image, isn't it? Go with me to Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling that record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Verse 13 of Colossians 2 names our condition. Because of our sin and our separation from God, we were spiritually dead, he says, which means that we were unable to relate to God in any way. Uh, No bandwidth, no connection. Unable to reach him, unable to please him, having no part in him whatsoever. We were on the highway to hell with no exit in sight. And that's the bad news. The good news is that God stepped in and he raised us to a new life. How did he do that? Paul says first he forgave us all our sins. What does that mean to be forgiven? What does it really mean in in relationship to God? It means that apart from any merit on our part, God freely extended his grace to us and pardoned us for all of our sin, past, present, and future. In fact, the Bible says in... In, in, in the promise of the new covenant in the Old Testament, the new covenant that God would make with us through Christ, he says, I will forgive their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. What does that mean? It means doesn't mean that he forgets because God can't forget. He's perfect. What it means is that he, he, will, he refuses by, as an act of his will, he refuses to bring that back up and, and hold it against us ever again. Next, Paul says he canceled that record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. So through the sacrifice of his son, God took that record of my sins, that that long list of my failures, all of my mess, all of my filth, the one record that could damn me for all eternity. And he nailed it to the cross. And in so doing, he erased the record forever, just just wiped it away. You might say, but I thought it was Jesus himself who was nailed to the cross. I don't remember any list of my sin being nailed there. And that's true. Paul wrote of Jesus that, 
that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He made him who had no sin to literally be sin, to become sin for us. Peter said of Jesus that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he quotes from Isaiah 53, the the ancient prophecy regarding Jesus. By his wounds, you have been healed. When we die to sin, it means death is no longer alive to us, and we're no longer alive to sin. Because he died our death. Jesus embodied, both embodied our sins by becoming sin for us, and he then bore our sins in his own body at the cross. He stood in as our substitute. He died in our place. He died our death, the death that we should have died. Jesus died for us. And in doing that, Paul told the Colossians, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and triumphed over them in him. And so here we're coming back around to nullifying the power of the devil. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Who are they? They are demons who exercise demonic influence in the spiritual realm, serving under the rule of Satan. The picture that Paul gives us is of a conquering general who has stripped his enemy of their weapons, even of their clothing, and he is leading them in a public procession, a public parade, all tied up, all shackled, by which they're not only finally, ultimately, completely defeated, but utterly humiliated as well. They're put to public humiliation. During the days of the Roman Empire, that procession was called a triumph or a triumphal procession. In this case, Jesus is the conquering hero, and Satan and all his forces of darkness are the humiliated, defeated enemy. And the end result of all of that for us, the writer of the Hebrews tells us, is deliverance. Deliverance. Deliverance from our lifelong slavery to the anxiety, the fear, the terror of death. Psychologists have a name for this fear. It's called thanatophobia. It comes from the ancient Greek god of death, Thanatos, and the word phobos, or fear. See, to to a greater or lesser extent, we're, we're all scared of death. We might say we're scared to death, whether it's a fear of our own death or someone else's. For some, their fear of their own death is rooted in the unknown. I mean, what happens after I die? Is there anything? Or do I just become worm food? What's next? For others, it's the terror of total non-existence, the extinction of, of their mind and their spirit, their soul, and those nagging questions, did my life have any meaning, any value at all? Because it all seems to come so suddenly, so quickly, so abruptly. What is my existence all about in the final analysis? And for all, there is this innate sense of debts coming due and of judgment to come before the throne of a holy God. And we don't even have to be taught that to sense it.
Jesus is the prophet like Moses who came to lead his people out of slavery. You remember the Moses was the one whom God chose to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And near the end of his life, Moses said to his people, The Lord has said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. In a similar way, Jesus is the the true and better Moses who came to lead us out of slavery to the fear of death by defeating the one who had the power of death. And one day he will defeat death itself and cast it too into the lake of fire. He was, as we sang earlier, born to conquer the grave. By his death and resurrection, that's what he did. So that one day the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Dorothy Sayers was a 19th and 20th century English crime writer. Uh, She was also something of a poet. But she authored a series of books known as the Lord Peter Whimsey Mysteries. Um, no one in the first service had heard of them. Anybody here? Uh, I think they uh, probably were popular most in England, and the BBC turned them into uh, a series of, of movies. But the fictional character of Lord Whimsey was this Oxford-educated aristocrat. He was a dilettante who became a professional detective. He was a a loner, he was a recluse, he was a lonely man. And later, Dorothy Sayers wrote into the novels a character named Harriet Vane. In those novels, Harriet Vane was, coincidentally, just as Dorothy Sayers was, one of the first women ever to attend Oxford. She was also, coincidentally, just like Sayers herself, a detective writer. And in the books, Peter Whimsey falls in love with her and eventually marries her. And some literary critics, observing the the striking parallels between the author and the fictional character that she created in Harriet Vane, say that Dorothy Sayers looked into her novels and saw a character in Lord Whimsey, smart, brilliant, but lonely and unmarried, whom she loved. It's as if she fell in love with her own character, and in order to save him, she, as only the author could do, wrote herself into the story, entered his world, and saved him from his isolation and loneliness. See, that's that's what Jesus did. That's what God did in Jesus Christ. He he looked into the world he had created, and he saw us, saw us dying, saw us flailing. And he loved us so much that he, he wrote himself into our story. 
That's what Emmanuel, God with us, really means. He, he became a human being, though he was God, and he saved us, saved us from our sins, saved us from spiritual death, saved us from the very fear of death itself by granting eternal life to all who would look to him in simple faith and be saved. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your indescribable gift. Thank you that you saw us as we are, sinful, separated, spiritually dead, And by the cross made a way for us to be raised to newness of life. And gave to us the gift of abundant life here in the the here and now and an eternal life in your presence. Lord, help us not to miss, not to neglect, not to drift away from so great a salvation as the one you offer us. And Lord, may we, in our gratitude that you have delivered us from slavery to the fear of death, respond in faith. And Lord, would you, in this season and in every season, make us mighty, make us strong. We pray it in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen.